Now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Wilbert Rideau. Mr. Rideau is an award-winning journalist. For 25 years, served as the editor of The Angolite, the nation's only uncensored prisoner-produced publication, which was nominated for seven national magazine awards. While in prison, Mr. Rideau was correspondent for NPR's Fresh Air. He co-produced and narrated a, a documentary, Tossing Away the Keys, for NPR's All Things Considered, and co-directed the Academy Award-nominated film, The Farm, Angola, USA. He is the recipient of a George Polk Award, a Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, and a Soros Justice Fellowship, and has worked as a consultant with the Federal Death Penalty Resource Council Project. He is the author of In the Place of Justice, A Story of Punishment and Deliverance. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Wilbert Rideau. Thank you. Thank you. I know that you've listened to many speakers tell you that uh, they were happy to be here. But trust me, after spending 44 years in the Louisiana State Penitentiary, no one has ever meant it more than I do when I say that I am really happy to be here tonight. So I'd like to take a moment to thank all of you for coming and thank Zocalo Public Square for hosting this event and giving me an opportunity to talk to you about my memoir, uh, In the Place of Justice. Someone asked me in an interview why I wrote this book. Obviously, I have to earn a living. And the main thing I know how to do is write. But why this book and not another? Actually, I would have preferred to write a different book. One about criminal justice and the penal system, since I was fortunate during my years as a prison journalist to acquire a global perspective on those subjects. But the book that publishers wanted was my life story. So what I tried to do was to weave into the telling of my story the evolution of criminal justice and the prison system during my 44 years in it. Four decades is a very long time. And as I say at the end of my memoir, I wake up in heaven every day. I know I'm in heaven because I spent 44 years in hell. Prison is hell. If by hell we mean a place of discord, brutality, and chaos, of always wanting and never having. Of course, it's not meant to be a picnic, but neither is it supposed to be a house of horror. A few years ago, the world was shocked to see photographs of the indignities and the abuses being inflicted upon inmates at Abu Ghraib Prison and video footage of the conditions under which prisoners are being kept at Guantanamo Bay. And I'm very mindful that it wasn't until the cameras got in the Hitler's concentration camps that the civilized world recoiled in disbelief at pictures that documented 
the very worst that the human mind and heart could devise. Before that, the rest of the world could pretend not to see, not to know, and millions suffered and died horribly. While there's no comparison between what happened then and what's happening now, one common thread in Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay, and the concentration camps is that in each case, the victims were labeled and dehumanized, defined as being fundamentally different from the rest of society. Another common thread is that what was occurring was going on behind closed prison gates. That's where hell exists, behind closed doors. That's where I came from. The Louisiana State Penitentiary, which is generally called Angola, where I spent most of my life, was at one time the bloodiest prison in the nation. As you will read in my book, violence was a way of life, and life was cheaper than dirt. It was a jungle in which the weak either perished or served the strong. Homosexual rape and enslavement was common, and that happened with the tacit consent of the prison administration because it kept the inmate population divided. In fact, at that time, certain trustee prisoners, all convicted murderers, were given rifles and pistols and the authority to shoot to kill other prisoners. These were Angola's infamous khaki-bag guards, and their brutality was legendary. So inmate-on-inmate violence was institutionalized in the khaki-bag system, and it was tolerated, encouraged even, in the sexual slave trade that flourished because in its own perverse and violent way, enslavement brought a kind of order to the chaos that was then Angola. But Angola wasn't unique. Lawsuits are still being filed today against American prison authorities for failing to protect inmates from abuse, rape, and violence. And I tell you this, it is because prisons operate in the dark and in secrecy that abuses thrive that violence thrives, that corruption flourishes. I can also tell you that the greatest impediment to making prisons safer and more humane is the lack of freedom on the part of both inmates and staff to tell the truth about what is going on inside their prison. Why should this be? The right to speak freely and critically of our government is one of the fundamental rights that distinguishes America from totalitarian societies. Lawmakers and courts have historically upheld that right. And many men and women have died to defend it. But our nation's penal institutions are cloaked by official censorship and prisoners are routinely denied the freedom to express themselves, to speak critically about their keepers without fear of retaliation. 
Historically, this practice has been justified by prison authorities who claim it is necessary for the security of their institutions and for the safety of those who work and live in them. No evidence has ever been presented to demonstrate a need for censorship. Yet, courts have religiously upheld this practice out of deference to prison authorities who are keeping over two million individuals locked in silence in America behind closed prison gates. But as I describe in my memoir, for one 20-year period, one 20-year window in time in Angola, the nation's biggest maximum security prison, censorship was lifted and freedom of expression for both inmates and employees flourished. Prisoners were allowed to have confidential mail communications with the media and governmental agencies, just as they have with their attorneys. In other words, they could write whatever they wanted and seal the envelope. As long as they were writing to mainstream media or public officials or agencies, prison authorities could not open the envelope and read its contents. This enabled any inmate to blow the whistle on abuses, wrongdoing, or corruption, and to do it without fear of reprisal or retaliation by the prison administration. One result of this at Angola was that it shut down a shady business operation where inmates were forced to scrub rust from outdated cans of tomato products and relabel them for sale on the open market to you. Even though the whistleblower was eventually inadvertently identified by the FDA to whom he had written, both the media and the courts prevented prison authorities from moving against him. So that's one way that freedom from censorship worked at the level of individuals. What it did, in effect, was to create what today might be called an oversight committee of the prison's 5,000 inmates and 2,000 employees, any or all of them looking for and reporting problems. Even more remarkable, though, than the freedom of expression that empowered individuals was the existence of a free press, the Angolite, a bi-monthly news magazine staffed by self-taught inmate journalists, officially vested with the freedom to photograph, investigate, and publish any story as long as it could be substantiated and the laws of libel and slander were obeyed. In other words, as long as the staff abided by the same ethics and standards that govern professional journalists. Such freedom from censorship had never before existed in the history of American prisons. And it's worth noting that this unique freedom didn't spring from the breast of some progressive judge who declared it to be a constitutional right, or from an enlightened legislature. Neither was it created in some liberal stronghold where they try to reform prisoners and salvage lives. 
nor was it a project developed and nurtured by the news media. This free press blossomed in the bowels of a monster, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, at a time when it was the toughest and most violent prison in the nation. It came into being in the 1970s in the wake of a federal court order requiring penal authorities to end the rapes, the murders, and the gang warfare, and to operate the prison in a constitutional manner. I had already been assigned to the prison magazine, The Angolite, as its editor. C. Paul Phelps became warden of Angola and the state's director of corrections in 1976. My book, In the Place of Justice, is dedicated to Phelps because he changed my life and made possible everything good and productive that I was later able to do in prison. Really, the actions and journalism that lie at the heart of my book. Phelps saw some writing I'd done for a chain of black weeklies and frankly, saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself at the time. An insightful and politically astute man, he thought that trying to hide the horrific conditions in the overcrowded prison was both stupid and counterproductive. He felt that the more the public knew about the ugly reality of the prison, the more they might be moved to change things. He also understood that relations between inmates and personnel needed improving. As I explain on page 109 of my book, Phelps believed that the inmates' readiness to think the worst of prison authorities was largely due to administrative secrecy and the entrenched attitude that inmates do not deserve explanations. Quote, if the administration can't do something, if you don't have dentures or underwear to give an inmate, what's wrong with telling him that? He already thinks poorly of you. So what's the worst that can happen? That he might understand you don't have it to give and that you're not just trying to be mean to him? Hell, that would be a plus. End quote. In short, Phelps thought the press could perhaps serve the same role in prison that it does in outside society, be a credible source of information for all, and at the same time, transfer the power that comes from possessing information from a criminal grapevine to a more legitimate, visible, and accountable avenue. He approached me with the idea and I accepted the challenge on one condition, that there would be no censorship. We shook hands on it, and I became the first prison editor in American history to operate uncensored. For C. Paul Phelps to implement a policy of freedom from censorship was a bold and courageous move at a very dangerous time in Angola's history. But Freedom from censorship, whether in prison or out, is meaningless if you don't understand the forces that drive your world. So Phelps mentored me in prison operations, 
introduced me to his subordinate administrators and took me to staff meetings where he solicited my input to the surprise and dismay of some. But that is how I acquired a broader perspective than either the typical inmate who sees prison only through the narrow lens of his own pain or the guard who can never really know what it's like to be incarcerated because he can always walk out the front gate. But again, freedom from censorship is meaningless without the ability to gather reliable information. My staff and I were given access to all records and data about the prison and its prisoners, except those that directly concern security operations or contain private personal information about prisoners or employees. Along with the access and information, I was given a mandate. Tell the truth, or at a minimum, make an honest attempt to discover what the truth was. My staff and I functioned the same way as journalists do on magazines and newspapers the world over. We were given telephones, tape recorders, and cameras. In fact, when some disgruntled guards complained to Warden Ross Maggio that we should not be permitted to have a camera because we might take a picture of an employee doing something that would embarrass the prison, the warden's response was to authorize not only the camera, but a telephoto lens as well, <laughs> on the grounds that no employee was supposed to be doing anything that would embarrass the prison. The Angolite staff was also granted unfettered confidential communication with news media and public officials around the state and the nation. We were permitted to travel, unshackled, to other facilities throughout the state's penal system to pursue stories. We were also allowed to travel, chaperoned but unrestrained, throughout free society in Louisiana to cover criminal justice-related events and to interview public officials as well as free citizens. In the beginning, of course, we met resistance from employees and prison officials who balked at the idea of answering questions put to them by inmates. And some prisoners viewed us as sellouts when we refused to be just a journalistic gun to snipe at the authorities. But as we established ourselves as responsible and fair to both sides, the keepers and the cat, and as we began winning national awards for our work, we had no problem getting cooperation from inmates, prison personnel, governmental agencies, law enforcement officials, anybody. In fact, some of our best stories were suggested by employees, and some of our best research was done with the help of employees. We became so widely respected in our world that people wanted to be in the Angolite in much the same way that people here might want to be in the Los Angeles Times, or the New York Times, or the Washington Post. We were also blessed to have a succession of wardens who, while differing in politics and management philosophies, believed in the value of what we were doing.
even to the point of resisting pressure from state officials and their own bosses to curtail or end our operation. Rather than put us out of business, they welcomed the opportunity to correct the problems we unearthed in the system. They came to learn that freedom of expression and uncensored journalism in prison was a plus, not something to be feared, unless you had something to hide. In fact, warden after warden, when asked about why they allowed us such freedoms, usually after we publish some kind of expose, they told their peers in other states and the media that they had nothing to hide. As I relate in my book, there were definite benefits. Responsible journalism contributed to the overall safety of the prison by dispelling rumors and by educating and humanizing those who live and work in prisons. Employees and administrators gained a better understanding of the problems, physical and psychological, that prisoners cope with. And prisoners got to see the human being beneath the employee's uniform and got to know the difficulty that personnel face because of budget cuts or short staffing. The magazine fulfilled Phelps' vision of reducing the us-against-them mentality that prevails in most prisons in this country. For many years, the Louisiana Department of Corrections Training Academy used the Anglite magazine in its training program. And a couple of Anglite anthologies were required study for criminal justice students at a number of universities. The Louisiana media benefited as well. They learned much more about prison and prisoners and how we deal with each other than they ever knew before. They thought nothing of picking up the telephone and asking us for help on stories or for information. The Anglite magazine became the most celebrated prisoner publication in history and was the recipient of some of the nation's most prestigious journalism awards. The professional recognition our staff garnered from our counterparts outside prison conferred honor on the entire Angola community, prisoners, employees, and administrators. In 1989, we branched off into broadcast journalism, and as you will read in the book, the result was a string of unprecedented award-winning reports and documentaries that aired on national television and radio. The awards were gratifying, but our greatest satisfaction came from earning credibility and acceptance, ultimately by both prison administrators and the inmate population. That allowed us to solve a lot of problems and make a difference in the quality of life in our caged world. We got blind people out of prison. We got interpreters for deaf inmates. We got sick and elderly inmates released. We helped clean up neglect and change the culture that made rape and enslavement acceptable behavior. 
we impacted the quality of medical care at all the penal facilities in the state. We were even instrumental in getting the state to change its method of execution and fire its executioner. We were able to do a lot of good, though it wasn't always popular with the political establishment. But to be able to impact the lives of people in a positive way is the greatest achievement any journalist anywhere can claim. And we were no different. Our experience at the Louisiana State Penitentiary demonstrated the benefits of freedom of expression and of a free press in the world behind bars. And contrary to those who would have you believe otherwise, I'm here to tell you that our prison fences didn't fall, the guard towers remained in place, and the absence of censorship caused no deaths, no escapes, and no disturbances during that 20-year period. What I hope you will take from my memoir, if nothing else, is that the wall of censorship around this nation's prisons, like so many other walls in the world, is unnecessary. Perhaps the most important thing that the public and the news media need to understand about the censorship prison officials practice is that it is not just about prisoners or their rights. It is equally about the public's right to know what is going on inside public institutions that are hidden away and kept secret. Why is such secrecy tolerated? If it was practiced in any other setting, neither the public nor the media would stand for it. They would demand unfettered entry to schools to see for themselves whether the public's money was being spent properly and the school was being operated correctly. They would investigate the systems of foster care and Medicare without ever being confused about whether children or the elderly have a right to have the media investigate and check on how they're being treated. And they would demand to be able to speak freely and confidentially to individuals cloistered behind closed doors because even excellent journalists from outside prison don't know half of what they're looking at when they enter those gates. And the best of them realize that they don't know. But when it comes to prisons and prisoners, both the news media and the public get distracted by official rhetoric that prisoners don't have rights or that some mysterious security need would be jeopardized if inmates were allowed to express their views to the public, uncensored. Doesn't it strike you as odd that when prisoners ride or take hostages, their number one demand, almost invariably, is to express their complaints to the public through the media? Why should this be necessary in America? Why should the, the public be forced to take the warden's word 
for how well run the prison is, how good the food is, how content the prisoners are. To rely on the keepers of the institution for an assessment of it is like relying on the word of any dictator anywhere to give a fair and accurate picture of his regime. And I would caution both the public and the media to be skeptical even of prisoners who are allowed to speak to the media if you are hearing only glowing reports of the prison. Trust me, as I said when I began, prison is hell. And even the best prison, operated by the most enlightened administrators, has plenty of problems. Inmates are not all happy. They always have gripes and complaints, legitimate ones. So when you don't hear those complaints and criticism, be aware that you are hearing the sound of censorship in those silenced voices. Having spent 44 years in prison and having learned more about prison operations than I care to know, I can tell you that with the only exceptions being the physical layout of a prison facility, official security strategy and contingency plans, and information on how to make weapons and explosives, I can think of no reason for censorship and for controlling information available to prisoners. And censorship of information going out of the prison, whether by inmates or employees, does not serve the need for prison security. In fact, it does just the opposite. It shields officials from accountability and from public scrutiny, criticism, and professional embarrassment. It serves to protect and preserve the status quo and the interests of those in power in the last totalitarian society in our country. I emerged from my 44 years imprisonment with this conclusion. Ending censorship is the single reform that will produce the most dramatic and enduring improvement upon the prison system for the overall good of the inmates and the general public. I think the Anglite experience demonstrated that in spades. My final comment is that prison censorship is not only needless, it is also dangerous. Unchecked, arbitrary power exercised in secret over a generally despised class of people is a recipe for abuse, brutality, and worse. While the spotlight of public and media attention can sometimes be uncomfortable, I assure you that it cannot begin to compare with the evil that thrives in darkness. Thank you very much for listening to me tell you about my memoir, In the Place of Justice, and my experience.
Hi, my name is Todd Kerner. I'm curious with your extended experience in the prison system, how do, have you seen the prison population change over those 44 years? In other words, has it become more educated? Um, has it become more violent? Has it become younger? How has that population changed from when you first entered to when you left? Prison is prison, but the thing is, uh, you have a larger uh, number of older prisoners because the prison changed and it stopped letting people out. People who are serving long terms now stay in prison and even die in prison. So you have all these people growing old in prison. I mean, in the place I come from, it's probably uh, very shortly, perhaps in the next 10 years, it'll be the largest nursing home in, a, in the world. Uh, it's 5,200 guys there, and 95% of them are expected to die there. Uh, as for it's become less violent, prisons have become less violent, uh, your chances, contrary to what you see in the movies, uh, your chances of, you have a better chance, if you walk into prison, you have a better chance today of killing yourself than having somebody else kill you. When I was in prison, I mean, back in the early days, uh, your best chances was somebody else was gonna kill you. You know, it's changed because the federal courts got into the picture and they ordered, they mandated for states to change their prison systems and they pumped a lot of money in it into the seven, in the 70s and 80s and changed things. It's just that the, the movies and what you see on TV and the news media haven't caught up yet. Uh, you know, that's not to say that there isn't violence, there isn't brutality, there isn't all of that. Everything, I mean, there's some real nightmares in prison, but that's not how most prisoners now live. Now prison uh, violence is more targeted. It's rarely random. Um, I know that most of your experience is in the state of Louisiana. I was wondering how much of it is applicable to the California prison system, which is so very, very large. Oh, and my name's Emily. How would my experience in the Louisiana system apply to California prisons? Well, you've got crazy prisons here. <laughs> but uh, I've heard of them. But no, the one thing that would apply, and that's the reason I'm always talking about this, you know, prison authorities will quickly tell you that lifting censorship won't work. But you see, that is one thing that applies everywhere. I don't care which prison it is. If you gave every prisoner an employee the freedom to express themselves about their jobs and about the prison without fear of retaliation, that would reform, that's, it would have, that is the most profound reform you will make in the system because it empowers every individual in there to solve his problems. You can pick up telephone and call the news media. I mean, how many officials are gonna be brutalizing people or doing things wrong when you can drop a nickel on them. Oh, what is it, nickel or dime? <laughs> you know, you just pick up the telephone and call the, call the local media, call the cops, call the Justice Department. That's what they did in Louisiana. And uh, it went from the bloodiest prison from, and it's, it wasn't all that, I mean, they cracked down too. But between 19, from 1976 to 19, the end of 1977, it had 
converted from the bloodiest prison in the nation to the safest maximum security prison in the nation. And understand, between 19, I think between 1972 and 1975, it's in the book, 67 guys got stabbed to death in just three years. And uh, over 350 were uh, suffered knife wounds and other things. That's, you know, that was outrageous. You don't have that anymore. And uh, that, that would apply in the California system, but I'm sure that the Guard Union and your officials are going to fight you tooth and nail and predict that the prison will burn down if you do that, and everybody's going to get scared and say, oh, no, we, well, we, can't, you know, we can't let them speak their mind. I mean, those places aren't top-secret military facilities with nuclear weapons and whatnot, you know? It's not classified information. It shouldn't be. I mean, why should they be afraid to let people tell you what's going on in prison. Unless they got something to hide. Very simple. I'd like to know what was your committing case that caused you to be eligible for prison and uh, how many times did you have to go before the Board of Prison Review before you was released? Uh, when I was 19 years old, I uh, did something very stupid. I let my problems and frustrations overwhelm me and I thought that I could solve all my problems in life by robbing a bank. And it was dumb, it was the dumbest thing in my life, it was the darkest moment of my life, one which I'll forever regret because uh, somebody died. And uh, I was sent to prison for, uh, in fact I was sentenced to death for murder. Uh, I, this was back before the Civil Rights Movement. So, uh, first of all, let me say that I was very fortunate that I wasn't lynched. As you will read in the book, there were three to four hundred white men with guns trying to lynch me. Uh, but then I had a trial. I was defended by two real estate attorneys who had never handled a criminal case before. That's the way it was done back then. And I was tried in the, by an all-white jury males, because women didn't sit on juries back then, they didn't allow them to. And uh, when it came time, after the prosecution rested its case, uh, they uh, turned to the defense and my lawyers surprised the court and even me by saying the defense rest. No witnesses, not even me. And it took me the next 44 years before I finally was able to take a witness stand and present a case, uh, a defense for myself, and present evidence to show that, you know, it wasn't what the prosecution made it out to be. And uh, in, on January 15, 2005, a racially mixed jury, uh, let's see, 10 women and two men, eight whites and four blacks, six registered Republicans. Uh, they unanimously, <laughs> they unanimous, unanimously uh, acquitted me of uh, murder and found me guilty of uh, the lesser offense of manslaughter, which was punishable by 21 years in prison, but I'd say 44, so I was released. And that's the way I got out. What are the opportunities for making a life after you've been in prison? I was dealing with someone who had been convicted with a felony. There are none. There are none. 
making a life after prison? As far as employment, becoming mainstream? There are none. Prisoners, whether they're in uh, uh, Louisiana, this is my, I'm finding this. I mean, I knew I would have a tough time because I was the most visible prisoner I was in the country. Uh, and I knew that when I get out, nobody would hire me, despite the awards and journalism and all that, you know, the news media depends on advertisements. So, you know, I would have my detractors and they can't afford that. And I understood that before I walked out. I knew that I would forever have to be self-employed. Uh, that was okay. You know, I didn't like it, but you know, I'll take my, my freedom on whatever condition. And uh, that's not a complaint. I got out without a dime to my name and not a place to stay and uh, no governmental agency, no program. And understand, I was the most visible prisoner in Louisiana. Everybody knew I got out. Uh, no church, no nothing, uh, no official anything tried to do anything or even ask me, say, man, you got a place to stay tonight? Nothing. Uh, I did okay because I had some friends who helped me I had people who helped me transition, and my girlfriend, I mean, I didn't go any place with, without her for a whole year because, you know, your acquire habits in prison, that prison teaches you how to survive in prison, how to succeed in prison, but it does nothing to prepare you for the streets. You know, uh, you, 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 you acquire these habits, and when you walk out of prison, you don't take them off like you do a coat. They stay with you. All that paranoia that, that enabled you to survive in prison, you take that in the society with you. And when somebody offer you something, you question it, just like you would in prison. What is he up to? You know? Well, that's, you can't, that doesn't work out here. That's the reason my girlfriend stayed with me for a whole year. I mean, you know, and you stick closer to home. It's, it's tough, but forget about me. There was this guy and you'll read about him in the book. After I got out, shortly after I got out, a guy named Michael Anthony Williams, he was an exotic, he went to prison when he was 16, he was brutalized, he was made a sex slave, they, they raped him, abused him for years and years and years, and finally he was exonerated by uh, DNA. And he was innocent. He got out of prison and uh, he told the news media in the world, he said, I'm not holding, you know, I'm not holding grudges against anybody. I'm just glad to be free, to be out, and I want to put this behind me. I'm going to get a job. I'm looking forward to getting a job and starting my life all over again. You know, this year, five years later, he went to a television station and asked them to put him on air so he could ask for a job. He hadn't had a job in five years. He was innocent. I, at least, I'm guilty. But you know, when, when guys have to lie to try to find work, you know, society is screwed up. You complain about crime and you bitch and moan about recidivism rates, but when a guy comes out, you don't want to give, you don't, you, he has no way to earn money, nothing. You know? And what happens when what would you do if you couldn't survive, if you couldn't get a job? You're trying to do it right, and nobody will hire you. Nobody will do anything for you. All you encounter is hostility. You would get frustrated, and you're a law-abiding citizen. 
Well, they get frustrated too. The only difference is that once they get desperate, they resort to what they know best. And their whole attitude then is, hey, you know, we enemies. You, you, you and they're them and you don't want to help them. So, you know, they do what they feel they have to do. They feel like they're at war and they end up going back to prison. But before then, they end up hurting somebody. You know, you got to do better than this. And when I say you, it's not like you owe these guys anything because they offended you. Of course, this guy was innocent. But just as a matter of self-preservation, you should want the guy you send to prison to come out a better person than when he went in because he's going to come and live next to you. You should want these guys when they come out to have gainful employment, a place to stay. You ask about opportunities, they suck. You gotta scuffle on your own and get whatever you can. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing okay and I'm not complaining. Understand that. My worst day out, he out here beats the hell out of my best day in prison. I'm not complaining. <laughs> I'm grateful. I understand that, you know, nobody beat me over the head and dragged me to prison. I worked my way into prison. So I'm not complaining. I'm very, very grateful to have a second chance to be able to come out here and scuffle to make a living. Uh, I walked out. I don't qualify for Medicare because when you're in prison, you don't pay quarters into Social Security. I don't qualify for Social Security. I'm 68 years old. Uh, but it, that's okay. You see, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be free and hustle a living. Hi, uh, my name's Sabra Williams. I'm the director of the Prison Project at the Actors Gang. And we're doing rehabilitation work in prison for free. Um, I have to back you up, especially in California, the prison system is a disaster. It's they all are. Yeah, okay, well it's a Louisiana warehouse. Louisiana too. <laughs> right, it's warehousing people. Now they've taken away all the artist facilitators in the whole of California. So they have basically, you know, no rehabilitation in prison. And I wanted to ask you, um, I work a lot with inmates, and um, I ask them this question a lot. What would be your ideal prison? How would you like to see prison? Oh, God. <laughs> That's the wrong word. It has to be there, so how should it be? Ideal, there's no ideal okay. how prison. How should it be? How should prison be? A prison should be, let me say this first. You know, in all the years I spent there, I spent in prison, at some point, most, well maybe half if not most, I'd say most, most of the guys I served time with, not all, but most, reach a point where they want to be better than who they were. They want to be better than who they are. You know, if, you, if they have the opportunities, the problem, they don't have opportunities. You know, my opportunity was created out of thin air. But there aren't that many. And, you know, this is Wilbert Rideau talking to you, and yes, he's a writer, and he's good, and his, you know, his, 
you know, his transformation is visible, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of Wilburitos who are carpenters, plumbers, electricians, painters, cotton pickers in the field, in a prison field, you know, people who want to do better. And for lack of better description, they're the equivalent of, I always call them rule-abiding inmates because they're the equivalent of law-abiding citizens out here. And given an opportunity, a lot of these guys, they may need, they, they, they probably needed to be locked up at one point, just like I needed to be locked up at one point. But there comes a time when a lot of them don't need to be locked up any longer unless you just want to lock them up because, hey, just out of sheer vengeance, you know. But as a society, you're not blessed with inexhaustible resources to be able to do that. You're cutting budgets, education budgets, healthcare budgets. You're cutting all your programs that are designed to improve and help your people. All fighting people. What's your priority? Let's punish those prisoners. We're going to keep those prisoners locked up. Well, you know, there's something terribly young, wrong when a society begins to eat its young to punish people who offend them. And when you, I'm not saying don't lock them up. I'm not even saying don't punish them. All I'm saying is that at some point, stop and think about what you're doing. And say, okay, at what point? Maybe he's changed a little bit, or maybe I'll quit hating him a little bit, or... You know, not for him, but because we can't keep affording this. You know, we can't afford to do this. We can't have our cake and eat it too. And maybe we can let some of them out of there, the ones who show us that they genuinely are trying to be better people. And, you know, because otherwise you keep them in there too long and they're like real estate. They belong to you after that because uh, pretty soon you can't let them out because they don't have any place to go. They've outlived their families, their homes, everything, you know, and they just, you've got to take care of them until they die. And before they die, they're usually costing you about 100 grand, 200 grand a year. That's dumb. Hi, I'm Diane, and I love what you said about censorship, but I want to know, you said there was a 20-year window when you were able to speak freely. What happened? We got a new warden. And the problem in America is that, you know, wardens, uh, they're like God. You know, each one comes in and he declares this is his place and he's going to run it and he can run it any kind of way he wants. And even though 20 years of other wardens said, this is the right way to do things. One warden, he came in and said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to stop all that. The other wardens all said, we don't, we don't need censorship because we don't have anything to hide. This one has stopped it. He stopped it in what? Somewhere around, uh, just before I left prison, around 19, it's in the book, and it's still... Uh, tightly controlled right now. Everything is tightly controlled. But there's no, there's no accountability. I mean, he can do, he could do that. And the press, the, the governor, nobody said a word. The churches, nobody said anything. They just, okay, so he did it.
It's like nobody cares. My name is Ogahan, and I'm asking that you were taken in at 18 years old. Were you in high school at that time? Or no. what was your experience of high school and elementary school? I was an eighth grade dropout. Of course, when I went to school, I was an honor student. But then I dropped out at age, you know, in eighth grade. I, actually, at the end of eighth grade, I guess I could have gone to ninth, but, you know, that ended it for me. And formally, that's, my, that's still my formal education. In fact, yeah, I'm gonna, not going to let you ask the next one. I'm going to go ahead and say this. <laughs> go ahead. Right. I, I guess, what was your experience of your educational system from elementary? Did you have supportive my, teachers? Or, or what, did, what did you feel about your, the, your educational system in Louisiana? Uh, I was the product pretty much of the same kind of educational system you've got all over the country, although it's probably worse in Louisiana. Uh, I came out of what, understand, back when I was educated, we went to segregate, racially segregated schools. That was the law. It wasn't a matter of, you know, where you went. It was the law. This was before Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, we studied uh, hand-me-down books from the white schools. When they discontinued books in the white school, they'd give them to the black schools, and that's what we used to study. Uh, I... My experience, the result was that I was, when I quit school, I was literate, but uneducated. Like a lot of low-performing schools, that's what they do now. They, you know, they turn out literate kids, but they're uneducated. And uh, where I acquired my education was... Uh, Years I spent in a cell, where that introduced me to the concept of reading just to kill time. And I began reading, you read it in the book. I, that's, I read and I read and I read and I, I mean, I just, reading is transformative. It's the most powerful thing you will ever do in life for yourself, is read. Uh, it'll change you. You may not even realize it while, while it's done, but it will change you, trust me. Uh, that's why, you know, and uh, yeah, what I was getting ready to tell you, one minute, uh, I now, I serve as faculty and I, you know, with uh, legal conferences and whatnot, I just came from yesterday, I was in Arizona and uh, addressing the uh, Arizona Public Defenders Association's conference. I've been over here to address you, California. I do this. This is what I do. And uh, the thing about it, the oddest thing, I remember I was in Medill School of Journalism in Chicago, in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, one of the people in the audience, like you, asked, what was the strangest experience I'd had? Uh, since getting out. And I told them, I guess that would have to be me sitting up on this stage in a university where if I walked out of the door and went over to the admissions office and asked to enroll, they would call the guys in the white coats to come get me. <laughs> I don't qualify to even, <laughs> to even enroll, and here I am 
This is what I do. <laughs> and you have to understand, I talk to lawyers. <laughs> I mean, they've got plenty of education. But uh, yeah, I am eighth grade and, you know, it's cool. I, I, sometimes I kind of, you know, it's a nice little ego trip. <laughs> you know? And they listen to me too. Thank you so much. <laughs>